Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. This week on the podcast, Ren will discuss the issue of governance on university campuses, specifically the board members of those universities who come from outside their respective college campuses and have roles and responsibilities tied directly to those schools. I think a lot of these roles are filled by graduates who've been successful in business or elected officials or in charge of a successful nonprofit who are asked to bring a real-world perspective to campus. And Ren, there's an article in Forbes about this based on a study by a group called The Public Agenda. And among many other things, they reported that the board members they surveyed felt, and this is their word, clueless. That's really not a favorable condition for anyone is this description a little over the top, or do you think it's accurate? Well, based on what we're seeing um, on studies done, not just on university boards, and of course we're going to stay focused on university boards during mm. this podcast, but mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about um, other boards. That seems to be kind of a prevailing sentiment. Right. Yes. Board members feel that they come into these situations and not entirely sure why they're there mm-hmm. and what they're supposed to be doing and what is this governance thing. And, you know, we've heard and I've heard in my practice and in working with board members and being a board member that um, there really isn't a good definition of what is a board member's fiduciary responsibility. Mm -hmm. Often it's not discussed. It's not part of the board training, assuming there is board training. Um, What we know and we see from the report is they're pretty consistent. It's about 10% receive any kind of board training. Mm -hmm. How many of us are good at jobs, especially very challenging roles like being on a board? How many of us are good at those kind of jobs without any kind of training? Well, we know the answer is almost none of us. Yeah. There's a very small group of us who figure it out. But the truth is we wind up making more a lot of mistakes along the way as we figure it out. So the fact that, you know, peeling back the onion of the report, the fact that so many board members expressed either directly, saying they felt clueless, or indirectly in other ways, mm-hmm is not surprising because those are also board members who, in in a lot of cases, there is no role description. Right. There's no description of responsibilities and there's no training. And there rarely was any conversation about their fiduciary responsibilities. So when you're in that kind of situation, how do you legitimately feel anything but clueless? Yeah, I think that's... a. a a very logical conclusion that, um, yeah, how else would you feel? Along those lines, trustees report that they are sent a lot of information shortly before a board meeting. They also report that the information is slanted to a point of view favorable to the school. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, the reason why it's slanted, but it may not really serve the overall interests of the school. What do you think, Ren, is a better way to inform trustees? 
Well, there's a few things because, first of all, and this really came out and was kind of interesting that in the Forbes article, there's basically a a sentence about this. Mm -hmm. The trustees are responsible for requesting the information that they need to be good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. What we saw in the report is almost none of them are requesting that information, one. Huh. And two, an incredible number of them didn't even realize they could. That's really interesting. That never occurred to me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so... It, it was kind of revealing, and it, it should be very um, eye-opening for a lot of people, especially people who have kids in college or recently were in college mm-hmm. or they're about to send their kids off to college. This should be very eye-opening for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, when we think about governance, remember what the, the most basic definition of governance is protecting stakeholder value. Yes. Right? That's right? The board, the trustees, are the people most responsible for protecting stakeholder value That's more than right. anybody else. And in a lot of cases, it's a financial and in some cases a legal responsibility. Mm-hmm. They can be held legally accountable for failing to protect stakeholder value. Yeah. And we've seen cases of that happened. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that was that was glaring in this report is this, this not understanding what governance means, not understanding their role in governance, and not understanding stakeholder value. Right. And one of the things we've talked about a lot are things like security, and you know all the things that can go wrong. The board is really there to protect against those things that could go horribly wrong and destroy the stakeholder value of the institution. Right. That's right. One of the biggest things we hear about right now is um, physical and sexual assault on campuses. That's right. If the university staff is holding that information back from the trustees, they cannot do their job. They are not protecting stakeholder value. That's right. And so back, you know, back to the basic, the basis of your question, which is, you know, what information should they be asking for? It really goes down to that. We want real information, third party, verifiable, auditable Mm -hmm. information on the things that could, could really have a detrimental impact on stakeholder value. Your university, that means the physical safety of your students. Mm -hmm. Um, That means how your students perform after they graduate. So are they getting the value from their their degree that they're expecting? Mm -hmm. I bring that one up because look at all these for-profit institutions that are being sued by their former students now. Yeah, that's interesting. Because they, right, they didn't get the value. Yeah. Right? So you, as a trustee, you want to think about those kind of things, including fiscal responsibility. How is the university spending their money? Right. How, what is their, how are they managing their endowments? How are they managing their relationship with the government institutions? Mm-hmm. 
it's pretty impossible to not to exist as a university without getting governmental support and funding in some way. That's right. That's How are right. you doing that? What about institutional funding? Um, you know, a lot of research in universities, and we know I live in Minnesota, and I, that means I'm, you know, very close to the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. one of the largest research institutions in the world, mm-hmm. and they have very close relationships with various corporate partners. How is the board monitoring and governing those relationships? to make sure there isn't a conflict of interest, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that they're adhering to research standards, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's really on the trustees to ask for this information and not to sit back and wait for it. Yeah. Well, let's look at this then from another point of view. Let's consider um, a university president has an extremely well-informed board that is involved in the day-to-day operations of the school, would that level of involvement be welcomed or considered helpful? Day-to-day operations, absolutely not. Mo- okay. mo- that would just be, you know, kind of a pain <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. a way. Because um, again, their their role is to optimize governance. They're about governance. They're not about operations. They're not about um, constructing value, you know, you you know, none of the technical, you know, excellence, none of that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. They have a very specific checks and balances kind of role for governance. And their their touch on a day-to-day basis should only be felt in the type of governance, um, you know, uh, steps that are institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So, what level of decision making is each imp- person empowered to do, and what are the checks and balances to make sure that people stay within their approved role? Yeah. So, if I'm authorized to to sign contracts up to a million dollars, what's in place to make sure that I don't sa- sign a five million dollar? dollar contract mm-hmm. or to get around the system I don't sign five one million dollar contracts. That that's those are the places where we should feel the board mm-hmm. and their influence from a governance standpoint. But that's it. Day to day operations. They need to be somewhat removed and they're supposed to be. Remember? Yep. They're almost supposed to have this they are supposed to be objective, but almost at this sort of third party I'm looking in from the outside, but I do have, you know, access to inside information. Right. Yeah, that's uh it's interesting that you you made the remark about the signing the five one million dollar. I used to work at a place where something like that happened. Um I think a lot of us have, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh <laughs> and the outside in perspective, it's one of the responsibilities that, you know, board members are are supposed to uh, bring. But back mm-hmm. to reality, you know, most university boards are there pretty much to rubber stamp what the president wants. What are the potential pitfalls here? Well, if all they're doing is rubber stamping, and this is true for any board, um, then they're just not doing their job. It's a complete fiduciary failure. Mm-hmm. 
and that means that there's no governance at that level. And what do we know about organizations? They always take on the personality of those on top, right? right. Yep. The board, when we look at the pyramid of an organization, the board's at the very top. And if they are modeling a lack of governance or weak governance, then that cascades and becomes part of the culture of the entire institution. Mm. And we've seen that in um, colleges and universities. Penn State is one of the most beautiful examples of institutional governance failures. Yes. And there's Without been others. I mean, that's, that, that thing was textbook. When people really started to peel back the onion, it was like, wow. You know, this, this, the governance failure started way before anything that was untoward that was going on in football locker rooms. Right. And it just wound up creating this culture. And remember, that's what people kept talking about over and over and over again in their analysis of Penn State, mm -hmm. was this culture. Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. This governance failure at the top created this culture that allowed governance failures throughout the entire institution to the point that that became completely inst institutionalized and became their normal. Yeah, it's um, it's easy to forget about the situation at Penn State. It's been a few years ago, and it's out of the uh, public eye. But I think, as you state so well, that um, they can be the primary example. And I guess kind of with that thought, there's this really big gulf. There's a boundary between extreme engagement and just and forgive the pun, cheerleading by boards. That's a really wide gulf. So where is the balance? That's a great question because we really, on um, boards in general, I was going to start to say university boards, but it's not particular to them. We really want to attract board members that really believe in our organization and yes. what we're doing. We don't want board members who are there just to have it on their resume or you know, collect the paycheck, uh -huh. right? Those right. those are those are people who really aren't going to be contributing very much to this. And in the part we haven't talked about, and I thought was glaringly absent uh, in the Forbes article and in the report, is that a lot of board members are actually recruited for their fundraising capabilities. Yes. And and less for governance, um, and I mean that for university and nonprofit board members. And that does kind of, you know, skew it more towards the cheerleading side of the equation, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And we don't want to do anything to the board members to do anything to have a detrimental impact, again, to stakeholder value, to the school's image. But there is a balance. We should be passionate about the institution that we're serving for, Mm -hmm. um, but we have to be equally passionate about the governance. And that's why, you know, really in the last few years, in a lot of people like me and others who've been really talking about boards and how we've been really successful boards and how that can be a differentiator for a company or an institution, mm -hmm. we're talking about is really understanding that balance between governance and cheerleading, and really what it is is serving stakeholder value. Right. 
are you preserving and are you growing and are you are you protecting stakeholder value? Because I really believe that is the balance between over-governing, right? You're almost micromanaging your yeah. institution. Mm-hmm. Called it extreme management. I like that. Um, and just being rah, 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 rubber stamp, you know, do whatever the hell you want. Right, right? Yeah. It's really focusing on what is the stakeholder value for our institution, what do we need to do to protect it, what do we need to do to grow it? And that's the filter in which we um, make our decisions mm-hmm. and the filter that we use to govern our behavior. Yeah, I love the the mental image of the of the filter. That's uh that's really compelling. So let's say that Ren, you're a you're you're a university president and you had a board. How would you start to derive value from those people? That's a really good question. And I, and and I can already tell you how most university presidents would answer that and it okay. would be Fundraising. Yeah. Fundraising. And I would argue that the best way to think of your board, if you're the university president, is you should have, and you need to figure out what the percentages are for you and your institution where you need it to be. But absolutely, university boards are responsible and accountable for a degree of fundraising. Mm -hmm. Okay? That is not going away, just like any nonprofit board, right? Right. Figure out what you want that percentage to be, and the board should be part of this discussion. How much of our time and energy and passion do we need to spend on fundraising for a year? How much do we need to spend on that more difficult governance, the audit stuff, the peeling back the onion and finding the icky, ugly bits? that could harm the institution and figure out ways to resolve them. Mm-hmm. How much of our time do we need to spend in a given year on things like growing and developing and maturing our value? Mm-hmm. When you notice one of the things that you can do in that equation, that's actually how you can help balance what a lot of these institutions have to balance between academia, research, sports, Figuring out that percentage at the beginning of the year and letting that really kind of drive your recruitment efforts for your board mm-hmm. and your um, board committees, because remember, you have non-board members on board committees That's right. to help you with activities. That also will help drive a lot of community engagement. No university or college is an institution all by itself, Mm-mm. right? It sits within a community. Absolutely. And usually has some pretty strong ties to that community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So this will help, you know, understanding, you know, this sort of matrix will help drive those engagements. And one of the things that I think is interesting in some larger institutions, by the way, as an aside, they've separated fundraising into its own foundation board. Right. So that the the university board can focus on pure governance. Hmm. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's one uh, group of people who are very focused on fundraising, 
and the other group of people is very focused on the governance. Yeah, it's. I think that the word focus is really apt there. Um, it's as we, as you've taught us with uh, agile, we all do better when we're focused on one thing, and um, that's mm -hmm. a perfect, a perfect spot for it. So let's talk about sometimes boards are asked to multitask in a in a in a kind of a fractured way, right? Mm, yeah. And um, you know, having and there's a magic number. This comes out of a lot of the Deming studies, a lot of neurobiology studies that teaches us that on long-term human beings can only um, hold in their heads three strategic goals. Mm-hmm. So you notice that the breakdown that I suggested only had three categories. Yeah, I, I just the, connected those dots. <laughs> it helps your entire board and in the executives of the institution to focus on three things this year. These are the three most important things for our institution. Everybody knows what they are, so everybody's aligned, and you can be consistent in, in your delivering your performance against those three things. Yeah, that's. I would say use science to your benefit, right? Oh heck yeah! This is one of those ways we can do that. Yeah, it's. Um, it took us a few minutes to get to the science this week, but um, we got to the science. <laughs> I was slow, <laughs> but we always get there. Well, let's talk about accountability. Um, sure. And you talked about, uh, you know, being a member of a community and different stakeholders, but who's the board? of any college or university, who do they report to? To whom are they accountable? Wow. And that is probably one of the challenges because um, they have a lot of stakeholders. So we mentioned the community. I've also mentioned their current student body, mm -hmm. future student body, mm -hmm. and all of their alumni. That's a pretty broad group of people that they're responsible and accountable to, right? Right. And that is one of the reasons why these kind of board positions, these trustee positions, can be so challenging. It's really hard to know who you're serving because you're truly serving so many people. And that's why I think it's very helpful for institutions to define what is their stakeholder value. Be explicit about it. Mm -hmm. know, name your stakeholders including large donors. Name your stakeholders. Name the value that you provide for that stakeholder. Because I'm willing to bet if we went back to these same boards, 140 whatever boards, mm -hmm. right, and trustees, and we asked them, name your stakeholders, there would be a lot of hemming and hawing. I bet you're right. I bet you're right. And don't forget, uh, in the case of state schools the the taxpayers right yeah absolutely you know um again i'm in minnesota one of the largest um public university programs in the world minsku mm -hmm. the minnesota state college and university system it's gigantic yeah um and a lot of the oversight comes from our elected officials yeah and yeah, it's the same here in that. Texas. And, yeah, I was just going to say, and you're in Texas. You've got a very engaged legislature in yes. your state university system. 
and, and and so yeah, you that that's one of the things that we this I ah, stumbling a little bit there. Sorry, that's, okay. that's one of the reasons why I think naming our stakeholders and defining the value is so critically important for university and college boards. Yeah, and along those same lines, there's two very distinct tracks of work at universities, excluding sports. There's teaching and there's research. And those two tracks often seem to generate conflict. Is is that potential? Is this an overall failure of governance at these institutions? Or does that kind of thing just sort of come with the territory? I think some of it definitely is a failure of governance. Okay. And part of it, again, is not understanding who your stakeholders are and the value that you are um, driving. Mm -hmm. The whole reason we married academia and research was because there is an inherently synergistic relationship between the two. Yes. The other reason, and in, in the institutions are really, really good at it, so we look at John Hopkins, uh, Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. the University of Minnesota, University of California system, there's a few others that do this. They deliberately move their people back and forth between the two. Mm-hmm. Because they're supposed to be synergistic. Yes. Right? You're supposed to take what we learn in the lab and teach it in the classroom. We're supposed to take what we learn in the classroom and apply it to the lab. That's right. When those two become bifurcated in a, in a college and a university is when we have problems. And, and so that is absolutely a failure of governance because we lost track of our stakeholder value mm -hmm. of having these two things together. And the other thing that we keep seeing that happens when they become bifurcated is that the research side starts to serve a different set of masters. They're no longer serving the academic institution, the university or the college, right? They right. wind up serving their corporate partners, mm -hmm. which creates even more conflict within the institution and animosity, less energy, so on and so forth. Right. Right? Absolutely. And the truth is, the corporate partner should be the corporate partners of the university, not a department of the university. <laughs> so that's a governance failure there, too, right? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. So often when I've worked with people to peel back these things, that's what we find is we find governance failure on top of governance failure on top of governance failure. And then we get these institutionalized in our culture and as you know, you kind of alluded to in this is then we get animosity between yes. two groups of people who are really supposed to be working together for everyone's benefit and really are quite synergistic. Yeah, that's so well said. And um, when they do become rivals, there's no upside there. None at all. None at all. Both sides, um, both the academic and the research lose, so do mm -hmm. their corporate partners, and so does the community at, at whole, because we know for a fact that the institutions that, and why do you think 3M does this, right? 3M moves their people around. Mm -hmm. When they do that, we actually get more learning, we get better information, we get better products, we get better benefit from these relationships. Yes, that's so yeah. true, and with the, with the time Remaining, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the the recent events at the University of Missouri and 
the resignation of two of their leaders, in, including the school's president. And from a public relations point of view, this looked like a massive failure of communications. But what of the role their board has and had leading up to the situation that, that caused these resignations? Where did they go wrong, and what should or can other university leaders learn from that? Right. So one of the things we talked about was identifying your stakeholders and understanding their value, Mm -hmm. that you're driving to them, not that they're giving you, right? It's not about, you know, tuition. It's about why they want to pay you tuition. Yeah. And to me, this immediately was a governance failure, and it was a clear one. We have uh, executives in this university who see their role as fundraising. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with protecting and growing stakeholder value. And we have an entire culture where the leadership, and I don't know any of the board members, but based on behavior and outcomes, we can guess that they're somewhere between fundraisers and rubber stampers. Yeah. Right? I think think that's very reasonable. Um, and this created this entire culture of we're here to raise funds. The president's um, compensation is largely driven by fundraising, mm-hmm. not the work that he was doing for the students. Mm-hmm. And that creates this um, dichotomy between the students and the university leadership. And we get this us versus them and all the communications, I hope you can see that now, the communications, especially from the university and the student body, was us versus them, us versus them. There was no we in there. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a great sign for everybody listening um, that you probably have some governance failures that's been institutionalizing your culture. In your culture, you have an us versus them conversation. Yeah. That's uh, when you when you frame it like that. It's it's very obvious now that it was um, it's it was really combative. Very, and, and and you can understand if you're the university president and your job is to fundraise. Why are these students bugging me with all these issues? Yeah, that's right. That's not, I don't care. It's not you know. It's not my job. It's <laughs> not the right. job. Right, and if even if you're the board, they're like, we were we were brought here to fundraise, mm-hmm. not this stuff. Not make sure that there's a safe learning environment for students. Yeah, well, right, because none of the stakeholders were laid out, and none of the value was laid out, and so no one was sitting there from a governance perspective going, um, actually, guys. <laughs> Yeah. Our, our number one concern are our students. Yes. And that is the job of the president. That job is the job of the board. And we need to make sure that we're preserving and growing the value for our students. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, before this conversation, I don't think I would have really even known where to start with reforming that issue or those issues due to how mm-hmm. complex they were but you know you've described um the fact that there was confusion of roles and gave us a realistic path forward for managing if not just you know redoing the role of governance and not just at missouri but um for universities in general 
-hmm. Well, one last thing um, before we go. There was a lot of publicity about the program on the VTech hack and Ren's list of steps for parents to take to protect their children from online data theft. And because of that, and for those of you listening who would like to get a copy, you can do so now by going to the website, which is renmelberg.com. And the information is free for the asking. I think uh, the only thing anybody has to do is give their email address, and that's just so we know where to send it. So that's uh, due to popular demand. And um, thank you, those of you who, who uh, helped to drive that. And that'll do it for another week. Be sure to come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.